Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. In recent days, the Sydney Morning Herald has been reeling from a huge backlash that it received when it tried to cover a story about Rebel Wilson's new girlfriend, the story was seen by many as an attempt to out the star. This perception the Sydney Morning Herald trying to out Wilson was not helped by the journalist working on the story, Andrew Hornery, saying his column was gazumped when Rebel Wilson took the matter into her own hands and published details of her own new relationship on her Instagram account. The backlash has been loud and fierce from sections of the media and the public alike. And if that wasn't bad enough for the Sydney Morning Herald, the story has now gone international with people like Whoopi Goldberg, among others, joining the chorus of indignation. In this edition, we ask some serious questions about the editorial judgment behind this failed scoop and ask if we're seeing a recalibration of what is in the public interest in the Australian media. Joining us today to discuss all of this, we're lucky to have a heavyweight journalist and a former SMH editor, now turned media baron. Eric Beecher is the proprietor, which runs and operates Crikey and The Mandarin. He also runs Solstice Media, which runs The New Daily. He has also not just been the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, but also the youngest person to be so. Eric Beecher, welcome to the program. And Hamish MacDonald is a man of many talents, hosted The Project and The Sunday Project on Channel 10. He has extensive experience in both radio and television, including hosting ABC's Q&A and Radio National Breakfast. He's also worked for Al Jazeera and the ABC in America. Hamish, welcome to the program to you as well. I want to unpack a number of different aspects to this story, but Eric, I'll start with you as a former editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. Yesterday in Crikey, you and Peter Frey, another former editor, wrote strongly about this matter. You didn't hold back. You both say that this is not just uh, the Sydney Morning Herald making a mistake here, but it's been caught moving into tabloid journalism. What besides this story makes you say that? Look, you don't make a mistake like this, which is such an obvious, egregious mistake within the right kind of culture and under the right kind of ownership direction and within the right kind of editorial environment. It just can't happen, something like this. So that's what 
really concerns me and, and Peter. Um, and, you know, this has probably been coming for quite a while. Uh, the Herald and The Age and the Financial Review, which used to be part of the Fairfax organisation, are now owned by an entertainment company. They're probably 20% of that company's business. Uh, the rest of that company largely doesn't do journalism. They do a little bit of it. And so the journalistic culture uh, that prevailed before, uh, and I don't want to just hark back to the good old days, but it just can't happen like that uh, in the right kind of culture. But can you understand if that is indeed happening, that a culture does change when businesses are trying to exist in such a tough, uh, a tough business environment out there? Well, of course I understand. I mean, I, I have media businesses of my own. I do understand that. But what we're talking about here are some of the last vestiges of serious quality journalism uh, in, in a you know, vigorously uh, democratic country that's dominated by uh, concentration of media ownership. And so it's pretty important, I think, for our democracy. Um, and I think this kind of discussion is really important because if the Herald and the Age are well down that path and if the culture and the ownership and the board that supports that ownership support that kind of much more commercial culture, then I think it's really important that we at least talk about it and understand it. So is this the first indication then, this story, in your mind of this shift that you're identifying? I don't think it is. I don't want to sound like a cynic or a critic about this, you know, like I'm out of it, I've been out of it for a long time. Uh, I do my own media things and people can kind of comment and criticise uh, them. Um, but it was interesting, I, uh, when I looked at the, the stories uh, that the Herald had written about this topic the other day, I went to the Herald's homepage, which I don't normally look at, and I looked at that homepage and I thought to myself, if it didn't have the Sydney Morning Herald masthead on it, it could almost be any kind of tabloid newspaper homepage um, in this country. Right, right. Well, that's that. That would have been worrying. Hamish, what do you think? Do you think the Sydney Morning uh, that the Herald's reputation has been tarnished, trashed, even? I think that's very difficult for to. to I think it's difficult to characterise it that way based on one story or one set of circumstances. I, I mean, I, I'm certainly not going to sit in judgment of other people's journalism or other news publications, uh, I think broadly the media has changed. I also think broadly society and culture has changed and what it, what is acceptable to talk about today is not the same as it was, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And certainly um, the way we talk about things today, uh, the standards of acceptability have changed radically. I think even in a couple of years, I think the way that we talk about some of these things has changed. Um, I think social media has has done that. Uh, I think also uh, changing, shifting societal norms around the way we we not just think about but talk about gender identity, uh, politics um, has has shifted radically. And I do think uh, all media organisations are constantly trying to adapt to that. And I suppose I see this more as an example of something, a type of journalism or a, or a way of discussing an issue that probably has actually existed in different shapes and forms for a long time, 
that maybe hasn't caught up with where society is today. I think for me, that's that's more what's happened here than anything specifically to do with uh, the trajectory that that a particular publication has gone on. And, and when you talk about about you know a, a newspaper catching up with where society is today, I mean this issue of outing has been out there for a very long time. It's been frowned upon for a very long time. Are you talking more about the way the public has a capacity now to weigh in on these issues via social media? Well, there is that, and it certainly does shape things. But I also think Australia and the world has uh, evolved. I think the way we talk about race and gender and sexuality um, has shifted radically. And like all industries, the media industry needs to clock that and reflect that back to society. I hope you don't mind me um, doing this, Monica, but I I took the time to go back to your interview with Ian Thorpe. I think it was yeah. uh, some some decades ago now. And I think you, you fairly pointedly asked him about rumours regarding his sexuality. Would mm. you do that today? I don't think so. I wouldn't do that today to mm. a young person that was so... Um, heavily in the public eye. It, it certainly created headlines at the time and I, I read some of your commentary at the time. You were incredibly sympathetic to this young man and, you know, I'm sure knowing you as I do, that you, you probably, um, you know, thought very deeply about it and, and tried to approach it relatively sensitively. But I think today that would not be acceptable. Mm. And I think, and I think it's right that we've we've changed in that approach. So, uh, you know, I don't think uh, that's anything to do with you or the ABC at that time being tabloid or anything like that. So, I guess I I, I observe this slightly differently to Eric. I don't necessarily see it in terms of the decline of a particular masthead or a desire to go after clicks. Those things may may be true, but I, I don't know. Uh, in this particular circumstance, but I, what I do know is that as a society, uh, as a nation, we now apply very different standards and expectations to journalists and to the media in general in terms of how they should be uh, probing, I suppose, into an individual's uh, personal life, particularly when it comes to matters of, of sexuality and identity. Look, perhaps this is a question that relates only to celebrity journalism, but, you know, how should journalists go about um, covering uh, stories that they know about, that they hear about, that are actually out there in the public domain being talked about, but not specifically reported about within the the kind of strictures of of, of journalism in in a way that doesn't breach um, a person's privacy and accords with the the mores of the day? Eric, what do you think? Well, you're talking about celebrity journalism. I mean, I agree with pretty well everything that Hamish just said, but I see these as two separate things. Where, to me, they kind of uh, coexist uh, is that if you have a, a, an editorial culture or a newsroom or journalistic culture that allows that kind of story to be to even surface uh, for discussion, let alone be pursued, let alone be published, and the editor and uh, presumably other senior editors are involved in that, Um, I think that that actually raises serious questions about the judgment that 
gets applied to all of these things. So you asked the question about celebrity journalism. I mean, the uh, typical reader of the Sydney Morning Herald over, you know, decades and presumably still now because it presents itself as a quality um, newspaper and, and journalism outlet, I would have thought those readers, most of those readers, would have been completely horrified uh, and jolted um, to see a story like that appear and to, to think about it to the extent that they would ever think about it, that the process that goes into actually uh, publishing a story like that or even contemplating publishing a story like that. So when you talk about gossip journalism, well, I think you have to kind of think about the context and you have to think about the audience. And the audience isn't just one audience across the whole country or the whole world. Mm. Eric, do, do you think that that story could have gone to print without the, um, you, you know, the, the, the upper echelons of editorial management knowing? Um, if, if it did, if that's possible, then I think it tells us a lot about um, how they think about their role as journalists and editors. Um, it, it just seems incomprehensible to me. As, as Peter Frey and I wrote in our piece, um, in, in a newsroom culture uh, of, let's call it quality journalism, whatever you want to call it, or just um, a, a high degree of professionalism, um, the idea of a story like that would never surface, let alone publishing. And, and you- can, can, can I just jump in on that? Because I, 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 I think it's probably a little more... I've agreed to participate in this conversation on the basis of, of having a constructive conversation about what the lessons are. And I think, you know, the framing for that very much is that the, the Sydney Morning Herald itself and the journalists involved has said that there are lessons and, and that they will be learned. And I, I do think some of these things have been in flux for some time. I'll give you an example. I, I've been very interested um, over the past couple of years to observe the journey that uh, Grace Tame has been on with the nation in a conversation about her experiences. And, you know, it's I have learned and taken a lot from her commentary around the desire for journalists to probe individuals for stories or for experiences that may actually be very traumatic and detrimental to them. And, and I think the conclusion that I've reached is that there's a very basic and, and and fundamental thing that you can do when you're going down that path, and it certainly shaped my approach, not not necessarily to, to stories about sexuality or identity as such, but where I know that the interview or the story may go into territory that is personal, that may be uncomfortable, may involve trauma, may involve uh, things that that one as a journalist shouldn't assume the the, the individual, the subject, is comfortable talking about is simply to ask them beforehand. You know, we all prepare for an interview. We all have uh, a conversation with the person before we put them on air or before we, you know, if you're a print journalist, turn the turn the tape recorder on or just go ahead and, and write the story. I, I think it's very easy in a circumstance like that to, and I, and I make sure, and I don't, you know, I've actually moved beyond just relying on, for example, the producer to tell me, look, you know, we've spoken to this person. They're happy to go into this personal stuff. It's a, it's a very strong story and they want to talk about it. I, I now actually take that further step. Uh, if, if it is an interview like that, 
to say to the person, to, to take a moment before we start and say, look, you know, I understand that you've indicated um, you do want to talk about these matters. I just want to understand where you're at with this and I want you to know that that if if we do stray into territory that you're not not comfortable with, that you're free to let me know at any point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you want to discuss it, now's the time to do it so that we can both go into this, uh, you know, with, with a clear mutual understanding of, of what's going to be discussed. I think people's um, stories of trauma, people's stories about their, you know, their, their journey around their own identity are, um, you know, are very sensitive things. And I think actually uh, as journalists it's not too difficult to up our own game. Uh, we can all improve all the time. And so I guess the conversation I'm interested in having, if there is a conversation to be had now, it's how do we establish those new norms and practices um, and make sure that if stories are told like this, that uh, it's done in a way that isn't shaming, that isn't creating a novelty out of sexuality, that is moving beyond some of those um, traditional, I suppose, stereotypical views of uh of sexuality, as was as as was the case, and I want to come to that point, Hamish. But can I ask you though, given what you've just said, isn't that in a sense what happened in this case, albeit in a testy and inappropriate email, which sounded threatening, which sounded as though it was laying down uh, a threat that 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 Rebel Wilson would be outed? But isn't isn't it the case that the the journalist in point here did reach out and say we want to discuss this with you? I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I will be very clear. I'm not going to go on the attack, you know, around an individual's journalistic practices. But, 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 but I think he has published the details of what he put in his email to her, and I think people can make their own judgment about uh, the inclusion of a deadline and what that would have meant to the individual involved. Mm-hmm. I, I think if you were Rebel Wilson or her team, there, there would have only been one reading of that. Mm. So can I just can I just add there? I mean, I think what Hamish just said when he was talking about uh, people talking uh, in a very candid way about their trauma and identity and that kind of thing, and and asking them and reaffirming that they've given permission, I agree with that hundred percent. I think there's a really big difference here. The Rebel Wilson story is just about salaciousness. It's just about sensationalism. It wasn't about her talking about her trauma or her identity. It was just a celebrity story. Mm. Um, I also wanted to talk to you both a little bit about whether some of the public reaction to this is in part, because it has been so ferocious, whether there's some aspect of it that that is about the public adversely reacting to, um, to seeing how journalism has actually done, how the, how the sausage is made, if you like, that when, when there was the initial reaction, bad reaction to the original story, the original column, but then there's also been very, very significant negative reaction to the pieces that have, the three pieces that have followed it, two from the editor, one from the reporter. And I wonder whether people are saying, well, if that is how journalism is done, we're not comfortable with that. Eric? I agree, but I think if if you buy sausages and you don't get sick, then you don't ask how they're made. But when you buy sausages and you get really sick and and offends you, then you start to ask how they're made, and I think that's 100% legitimate. Mm. Hanish, what do you think? 
I would observe that uh, there's been a fair amount of candour from the publication around uh, what they did and why, um, and that's to be encouraged. But certainly I think, you know, the way that stories come about and the tone that is taken from journalists at times, you know, I, I think there's probably a reason that we all collectively as a profession have the reputation that we have. Um, in the end, it's up to each individual to try and act with as much integrity as they can. I'm sure there's probably been times, you know, in my career where politicians or, or business leaders have, have felt that they, you know, were, were pushed and shoved a bit in trying to get an interview or to try and get an answer. I guess there's probably times where I reflect on things and think, you know, I probably, probably pushed a bit hard myself. I think, you know, all I can say is it's important to to try and maintain some humility and try and self-reflect as much as possible and see, you know, I, I always work hard to try and uh, look for instances where I could have done things differently or better. And I, I probably, you know, I do spend a fair amount of time uh, considering what, I, what, I've, what I've gotten right and what I've gotten wrong, what I can improve on. I think that's, I think that's healthy to do as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe that's one of the other lessons out of this that is that, you know, you don't, you don't always have to be right. Uh, you know, if you, if you did get something wrong, it's worth thinking about. I think sometimes the cri- criticism from the public, particularly around social media, thank God I'm not on it anymore. Um, I think that the criticism from social media can be, can be pretty overwhelming. And it is a skill. I think it's, it's a discipline, in fact, to be able to identify within the scope of the criticism that exists what the salient points are, what's useful, what's constructive, what is what is worth taking away to help you improve and be a better journalist and what should be disregarded. And, um, you know, working on the ABC, there is no shortage of criticism, um, whether it be in the newspapers or whether it be on text lines or through social media or or, you know, emails to you directly. Uh, mm. you, you are constantly receiving critical feedback of your work. And I think, I suppose, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll land somewhere different. I think there are people that, that ignore it all and it's just water off a duck's back. Um, that's, not, that's not me. Um, that's not how I can function. And so for me, certainly in recent years, particularly when I was doing Q&A, it became about how do I make a process out of this? How do I, how do I take in all of this feedback um, and get something constructive out of it that hopefully makes me better? Mm. Um, yes, it's, it, it, can be, it can be really vicious out there. Hamish, do you find the same level of um, public critique of your work on 10? Or is it an ABC? Um, uh, look, I don't really I, I can't really give a clear answer to that because I have left social media altogether so I don't have any connection with that world and I think as a journalist uh, I wasn't I really wasn't sure about cutting closing down those um, profiles because mm. it, it had mostly or for most of my career particularly as a foreign correspondent felt like a very uh, positive tool of my trade um, and I'd built a large kind of audience there which I could 
report to directly if I was in Ukraine or you know, Iraq or, or wherever. Um, and, I, and I had always found it to be uh, more good than bad. Uh, that changed for me when I was at Q&A and at the ABC full time. Um, so certainly there's less of that, but I'm not on the, on the platforms. But you're not immune from it at 10. It's just a very particular, I suppose, scrutiny that comes with being at the ABC. And mm. I, I certainly find it easier to manage now. And, and to be fair, I think um, I work in an environment where I think there is, I, I think maybe the commercial world is a little more um, adept Mm. No, I think actually in terms of the management of, of, of commercial media, I think maybe it's, it's a little more advanced in its thinking about how to manage this stuff mm. uh, than perhaps what public broadcasters, I'm not, not critical of the ABC at all, but just I think because of the public ownership, uh, there's almost a sense sometimes that, well, you're the public broadcaster, you just need to lie back and cop all of this. Okay, well, let's circle back to this story at hand, though, and the issue of public interest. Um, Eric, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you whether you think there's some contemporary formulation of the public interest informed by, you know, the principles of accountability, the public's right to know that can be applied to... Uh, to celebrity journalism, or is it as Hamish has just articulated that the that the new benchmark is is basically having open, transparent conversations with the people about whom you intend to report or write? Well, I agree with that, but that's the theory, and then it depends on the individual journalist to whether that or not they pursue it. It's interesting when you use the words public interest. So uh, we have this phrase, public interest journalism. Uh, which is actually now enacted in legislation, the, the Google Facebook legislation, and it has been in previous legislation. And it has a definition in that, uh, quite a long definition in that legislation. And I think most people, when they think about it, uh, understand what public interest journalism broadly is. But then you have uh, another phrase which uses the same words in a different order, which is uh, journalism that the public is interested in. That's right. And uh, they get a kind of... Um, swept along together in, in ways that it suits certain organisations and so on. So I remember if about two or three years ago, the ACCC under Rod Sims held uh, uh, a kind of forum uh, where they were looking at uh, the Google Facebook issue and some of these issues. And the theme of it was public interest journalism and the impact that the, the Google and Facebook's um, advertising revenues is having on public interest journalism funding it. And there was a lot of discussion and there were media people and academics and whatever there. And, uh, toward, and, and we were all on the same page broadly, but towards the end, uh, the senior representative, very senior manager from News Corp got up in front of the 30 or 40 people and basically said... Um, we don't agree with this phrase, public interest journalism. We produce journalism that the public's interested in. And there is just a, a stark difference. Mm. So, so okay, so the Rebel Wilson story, that, that falls outside of the, um, of the accepted defin- current accepted definitions of public interest journalism. Yeah, it's, they, I assume they pursued it because they thought the public would be interested. 
Hmm. And what about, so Kelly, can I ask you both, what, what about the, the, the story of Barnaby Joyce's relationship with Vicky Campion? Was that, was, was that in the public interest, publishing that story, Hamish? I've had a lot of conversations with Barnaby about this. <laughs> I, I mean, clearly the argument that he's made, right, is that uh, Vicky Campion was a staffer uh, and on top of that, Barnaby Joyce had been one of the most vociferous campaigners against same-sex marriage in Australia based on family values. So there was a broader context. You know, how it came about the paparazzi photographers following a pregnant young pregnant woman around the streets of Canberra when she wasn't at work uh you know I think that's where it starts to get into far more nuanced territory uh I don't I personally find having a paparazzi photographer following you or appear out of nowhere quite a frightening experience um and so I I I I don't really I would find it difficult to to defend that practice generally, um, but in terms of the substance of the story, uh, very clearly uh, as the you know as the political figure that he was, there was there was a a level of public interest in it. But yeah, I, I, th- I think where you enter the grey zone is the is the how and the. Uh, um, the when and the where. And, and Hamish, because you, you, you've had your own brush with this kind of journalism, haven't you? Uh, do you mean photographers or, or sort of...? Yeah, um, photographers and, and, and prying journalists. Yeah, I have. Um, and, you know, I, I, I mentioned it briefly on the project the other day. I, I don't want to sort of, yeah. uh, you know, do a big sob story or, or turn this into something about me. But I, I have been on the end of, of some of that. Uh, I'm... I'm a gay man. Um, I've never particularly tried to make a huge secret of it, but I, I've never really, I never really was of the view that it, it was something that I needed to uh, make a big statement about publicly uh, or, or make a big song and dance about. Um, but, you know, I, I, ha- I have had some experiences with journalists quite some time ago, I might add, mm. uh, you know, indicating to me that this was something that they knew about, and and yeah, I, I, to me at the time it, it felt fairly threatening the way that they spoke to me about it, uh, and uh, it was a pretty scary experience in the sense that uh, it felt beyond your ability to have any control or agency around the way your own very deeply personal story uh, might be told. And so in that sense, I, I feel a degree of understanding about this. And I suppose that that probably does frame the way I, I, I come at this. Because ultimately, these things are deeply personal, but for every individual, they are different. Um, and some people may feel that they want uh, to talk about it publicly from the get-go. That's great for them. Others may not. It may be a very long journey for some people. And I think no matter who you are, it really should be up to you, the circumstances in which you, you do talk, talk about that uh, in the public domain. Okay. Look, a final question to you both. Do, do you agree that we're this week witnessing a kind of recalibration of public interest 
journalism and are we, as Peter Frey said on Radio National Breakfast, also witnessing the death of celebrity journalism? Eric? I don't think we're witnessing the death of celebrity journalism. Um, I hope we're seeing some kind of recalibration, particularly at the Herald uh, and outlets like that, um, where the standards are different. Um, I, I really hope that that's what we're seeing. Hamish, what do you think? I, I'm optimistic, actually, uh, because I have seen how much uh, the world has changed, how much our society has changed on these matters. Um, I just would offer a very simple personal reflection. You know, there was a lot of uh, hurt and upset that I understand for many people around the same-sex marriage plebiscite in Australia, but uh, I come from a very small regional community in New South Wales, which I always thought to be a, you know, a deeply conservative uh, bush community. And when that plebiscite happened and the vote was yes, uh, they released all of the information about how individual communities voted. And overwhelmingly, my home community voted yes to same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. And I understood myself differently because of that. And I feel... Um, I feel proud to, to come from that community, to be myself in that community, to go back to that community with my partner. You know, we went home to that community and got engaged last year uh, there because it's so special to me and I was so proud to sort of share that, that day and that moment with our neighbours um, and have a, you know, have a bonfire down the back of the house. I think we can change. I think we do change. I think the world changes. Um, and I think journalism can do that just like everyone else. Mm. And, and I hope that this is an opportunity for us as a, as a profession, as an industry, to, to just make some subtle changes. We don't need to get our knickers in a knot too much about individuals or publications. I think we can always adapt and we will. Mm. Well, we might leave it on that very, very hopeful note. Well, I'd like to thank you both for a fascinating and forthright discussion. Eric Beecher and Hamish MacDonald, thank you for being on Fourth Estate. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Monica. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We're back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Marlene Even, and my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Monica Attard. Thank you for listening. <laughs>